This episode is brought to you through the generous donations of a listener, Anna, and by our newest member, Jeffrey. Thanks to members like Jeffrey and listeners like Anna, we're able to keep this podcast on air and free for everybody. Now, before I get started, I've received a lot of email about my pronunciation of Nijmegen. I pronounce it Nijmegen, but that wasn't correct. It's, and I hope I'm getting it right this time, Nijmegen. So thank you to the listeners who took the time to write and correct me. And now, welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie. One of the things I'm most interested in is the development of the English language. And you will no doubt have to suffer through numerous asides about the development of our language as this project continues and gets into the Anglo-Saxon era. But even here, in the Roman period, we can see the beginnings of our language. For example, limes, the Latin word for frontier, is the root of the English word limit. And that's what we're going to be talking about today, limits and frontiers. Now basically everything we're going to talk about today started with Cartamandua and Venutius. Of course it did, right? So, until Venutius successfully outed Cartamandua from the throne, Rome had simply relied upon the Brigantes to function as their northern border. But then Venutius successfully led a rebellion. Cartamandua fled the island, and suddenly a massive portion of Roman Britannia was in rebellion, or under threat from the rebelling territories. That rebellion paved the way for Agricola's march north, and in turn, that brings us to where we are now. Rome has gone farther north than it probably had thought it would need to, and now found itself having to defend its own border rather than simply leaving it to Cartamandua and her brigantes. As we approach the construction of Hadrian's Wall, we're finding that Rome's borders were becoming increasingly more static, and as such, the role of the army had shifted from conquest to something closer to policing. Sure, Rome would still engage in punitive raids, keep banditry down when they could, and show their banners from time to time to discourage rebellion or military action from without and within Rome's borders. But the days of rapid military expansion were over, and now Rome became more concerned with holding its frontiers rather than expanding them. The limits of the empire took many forms. Sometimes it was mountains, sometimes it was a river or the ocean, sometimes it was just a road that would demarcate the end of the empire. And sometimes, the border would need something a little larger, such as a wall. And few walls are as famous or well-known as the northern border of Roman Britannia, a wall that would come to be the defining achievement for the emperor and would still remain in place nearly two millennia later. Hadrian's Wall. Rome had expanded to its zenith under Trajan, but it wasn't destined to last. And the withdrawal from the north of Britannia, which had actually already begun under Domitian, was probably not as organized or as clear as one would hope. So you have soldiers scattered across a huge swath of land in the north without a clear purpose. There wasn't an expedition any longer, and now they were trying to just hold the territory. And the locals weren't happy about that. So the legions and their auxiliaries we're in a situation not unlike any number of military occupations we've seen in modern times. You have soldiers who are trained to fight and kill, instead being asked to guard against tribal incursions and sort of act as police, keeping trade, migrations, etc. under control and peaceful. But there are several problems with that. One, they weren't trained as police. And two, the Britons didn't want to live their lives according to Roman laws. They've been doing fine for hundreds of years without 
any Roman laws, so they saw no need to change. It was so bad that when Hadrian came to power in 117, one of the major issues he had to deal with was the fact that, quote, the Britons could not be restrained under Roman control, end quote. And Britannia wasn't the only problem for Hadrian. It seemed like much of the territory conquered by Trajan was still rowdy. The legions were spread thin, and the natives were, well, restless. So Hadrian had to abandon the popular choice, that of further conquest, and instead strengthen existing territories and consolidate power. I guess we should talk a little bit about Hadrian before we get any further. See, doing the unpopular thing was nothing new for Hadrian. If you look at busts of the Caesars, and you probably should, you'll notice a long line of clean-shaven men. And then you have Hadrian rocking a rather hipster beard. Seriously, pause this and take a look at Hadrian. Now imagine him with thick-rimmed glasses and a cardigan. Hadrian was way more hipster than you, and he was killing it back in the day. Anyway, hipsterness aside, Hadrian had another problem. He was a Hellenophile. He loved all things Greek. For Romans, it was okay to read Greek philosophy, but you shouldn't be too big of a fan of the Greeks. That just was unseemly. And you definitely shouldn't be a fan of, well, Greek love. Here's the thing with the Romans. They weren't just misogynistic. They were also homophobic. If you could just get some hypocrisy in there, we'd have a trifecta. Well, they were mostly okay with their leaders having homosexual relationships, so long as they were, you know, not on the receiving end, so to speak. See, the Romans were so misogynistic that what really freaked them out was any indication that a man would take on what they considered to be a feminine role. <laughs> Romans. So Hadrian loved Greek culture, and as far as we can tell, also men. So he had that going against him. He also started his reign not in Rome, but actually in the east, handling a revolt, which left time for his enemies to plot his death. They argued that his ascension was illegal, and that it was not Trajan who determined that Hadrian would become emperor, but rather Trajan's wife, following the death of the emperor. They had a good argument for that, by the way. It wasn't Trajan who signed the adoption papers. It was actually Trajan's wife. So a plot was put together to kill Hadrian. They failed, of course, but that had an impact upon him, as you might imagine. And Hadrian would end up spending a good part of his career outside of the capital. Rome wasn't the friendliest place for him to reside, and so he tirelessly went from territory to territory fixing things. While this sounds like it would be terrible for Rome, since the assumption is that you need an emperor in the capital running things, actually it was great for the empire. He was an excellent administrator, and the empire needed a careful hand to keep it in line. And the best way to do that was to get in there, get your hands dirty, and see exactly what was going wrong, and what needed to change. So Hadrian spent a good time traveling around, visiting legions, establishing new rules for those legions, stamping out behavior he didn't approve of, and generally optimizing the way the legions operated. However, he also maintained the morale of the troops throughout these changes by living in the same conditions as the soldiers, improving their equipment, and correcting any issues with the conditions of their service. He was strict, but also even-handed, and did a great job of exemplifying the leadership tactic of, I wouldn't ask you to do anything that I wouldn't do. He didn't just reform military behavior and equipment, though. He also altered the posture of the legions of Rome, dramatically, in fact. 
No longer would the forces of Rome be focused upon expansion. Instead, he chose to consolidate and fortify, an unpopular move. This wasn't what was expected of a Caesar. He was supposed to go to war. He certainly had military experience. And he was expected to have triumphs and columns and return to Rome with slaves and riches. But that wasn't what he was after. He wanted things to run well. And he wasn't only interested in changing the military. He was also concerned with social issues. For example, he made changes to the legal code, such as granting further protections to slaves. Outrageous protections, such as you were no longer allowed to torture your slaves. Imagine that. I like to imagine that there were protests in front of the Trajanic Column, consisting of people in Republic-era outfits holding misspelled signs, comparing Hadrian to Hannibal, and demanding a return of slave owners' rights. People shouting about how outrageous it is that the government is mandating what a man does with his own property, and demanding an end to this era of big government interference. What I'm getting at is that Hadrian was not afraid of doing what he thought should be done, and damn the bad press or plots on his life, he was going to do what he thought was right. None of this had an impact on the type of wall Hadrian built. I just thought it was interesting and kind of humanized him. Especially since in a time when everybody was trying to be the next Augustus, Hadrian had the courage to go in another direction. But at the same time, this man, arguably the most powerful man in the world, spent large periods of time outside of his capital city, well, for many reasons, but the fact that he was not supposed to love the person that he did love must have played a role in that. And here we are, nearly 2,000 years later, and we're only just beginning to change. So Hadrian took the throne, and there were major revolts in the territories. He dealt with the rebellions in the east, and from about 119 to 121, there was a wide-scale rebellion in northern Britannia and Hadrian determined that he needed to visit this foggy island that has been such a headache for so many emperors. And that visit would lead to the largest ancient wall ever built by a hipster. Oh yeah, in addition to Greek philosophy, art, and whatnot, he was also quite interested in architecture too, as you might have imagined. So this wall really was unusual. You might even call it ostentatious. The borders that Hadrian built on the continent, for example, were nothing like this one. It stands to reason that something must have triggered it. Something must have motivated Hadrian to go well beyond any of the other walls he built and build this massive stone wall. Well, last week we talked about the ninth, And if I had to wager a guess, I'd say that at some point in the rebellion that started in 119, there must have been a major military defeat, perhaps involving the ninth. We know that the legions were having difficulty fighting the northern Britons and complained often about how they would engage in rapid cavalry strikes but would not meet the Romans in fixed positions, which was giving them a lot of trouble. Loyal listeners must be pleased to hear that last part. The Britons had finally figured out that they should avoid fixed battles with Roman legions. So despite the fact that the Britons would fight without armor, they were still causing serious problems for the Romans because they just simply could not draw them into a direct armed conflict. In fact, it was actually even a little bit worse because what the Britons would do is ride down in their cavalry, strike at the Romans with javelins, and then just ride off. <laughs> Fantastic. Anyway, in addition to having these general troubles, they must have also been a major defeat that motivated the emperor to travel to the ends of the earth to sort things out. Further, it must have been decisive enough to convince Hadrian that Roman Britannia required a heavily fortified northern border. 
This wasn't simply an imperial order saying, stay out of the north. Hadrian didn't just say, you know what guys, to hell with it. It's cold and dreary up there, let him keep it. No, he decided to build one of the great fortifications of the western world. Something significant must have happened. And as we know from last week, there was an emergency that required 3,000 reinforcements to be brought to Britannia, and later Frontinus wrote of a great number of soldiers that were lost to the Britons under Hadrian's reign. So what happened? It's possible that the Romans were conscripting northern men into the auxiliaries, which is something that's led to conflicts in the past. And there certainly wasn't any love lost between the two peoples. I mean, you have the Romans referring to the Britons as either Britunculi, nasty little Britons, or Nudi Britones, naked Britons. And the Britons were probably referring to the Romans as olive oil smelling So while we don't know exactly what happened, there must have been a major fight that happened, and probably a pretty sizable defeat. The point is, there might have been a pretty good reason to build a huge wall. So what are we talking about here? Well, the wall stretches along the Tyne Gap from Newcastle-upon-Tyne to just west of Bonus on Solway. The eastern portion is about 41 modern miles long and is a stone wall. Originally, it was intended to have a 10 Roman foot base and be around 15 feet high, depending on the location. Typically, when you think of a wall, you think of mortar as the binding between the stones or bricks, but that wasn't the case here. Mortar was used only very sparingly, Generally, the wall was made out of limestone and clay was used to bind the stones together, and rubble was used as a filler. At least in certain places, the wall was also covered in plaster and given a lime wash finish, which would have been an impressive sight to the barbarians in the north. The western portion of the wall was quite different from its eastern brother. This section was about 29 modern miles long and was constructed with turf blocks, usually three or four layers deep. Originally, it was intended to have about a 20-foot Roman base, and its height was similar to its stone counterpart to the east. We know the wall had a steep incline, though not a tremendous amount is known about the turf wall. Now, why build the wall out of turf? It seems kind of strange, right? I mean, walls are stone. Well, not really. To us, a turf wall might seem strange, but during the reign of Hadrian, stone was only just beginning to be used as a permanent building material. The turf wall portion was pretty typically Roman, and actually it would have been the stone wall that would have been unusual. In front of the stone wall was an enormous ditch that was rarely less than 20 Roman feet wide, although it was often wider, and was dug close to the wall unless the landscape didn't allow for it. The ditch in front of the turf wall was around 6 Roman feet wide, but that makes sense when you consider the fact that the wall itself was made out of turf, and there was a significant risk of erosion or slippage, so you couldn't really have it be as large and and sizable as the one in front of the stone wall. The ditch itself wasn't done in a haphazard manner. The walls of the ditch were at 30 degree angles and met at a sharp point, giving the ditch a V-shape. The bottom of the ditch was known as an ankle breaker for obvious reasons, and was around 9 to 10 feet down. Roughly every Roman mile, which is about... 0.9 modern miles, there was a mile castle. These mile castles seem to have been built regardless of the terrain. They are constructed according to a standard plan, much like prefabricated homes are done today, and they seem to have been semi-permanent lodging for soldiers. There was space within the mile castle for between 8 and 32 men that were housed in a cramped wooden barrack. 
The Mile Castle itself was oriented so that the north wall was flush with the castle. Thus the wall appeared to be continuous and unbroken from the perspective of the rebellious northern Britons. The Mile Castles, in addition to housing, also provided the most common way to pass through the wall, as they contained gates to the north and the south. Within the Mile Castle, there was obviously the barracks, which we spoke about, and also a bread oven, which was usually in the northwestern corner, and then a staircase on the opposite corner, allowing soldiers easy access to the wall. Between each Mile Castle, there were two evenly spaced stone turrets, which were essentially watchtowers that had been recessed into the wall. The turrets allowed for temporary housing of no more than eight men, and given that they were elevated above the wall, they worked as both observation posts and an easy way to signal to other stations along the wall. Now these were really cramped conditions, with the only entrance being available on the south of the wall, and access between the various levels being controlled by a ladder. Unfortunately, much of the information regarding the construction of the turrets has been lost, so there's a lot that we simply don't know, and we're left to just conjecture. Now as is the way with construction, both ancient and modern, things don't always go to plan, and there have to be revisions. This wall was no exception, and it seems that the second season of construction saw several changes. For example, the stone wall was revised down to a width of 6 to 8 Roman feet. It also seems that the mile castles and turrets were originally intended to be larger than the size they were eventually constructed in. This might be due to a tightening of resources, or it might have been due to hurried construction. After all, the western portion of the wall eschewed stone and opted for turf, Certainly there would have been fewer resources available in North Cumbria, so maybe it was strict economics, or perhaps the Romans were in a hurry to get the wall constructed as fast as possible because of the trouble they were having with the rebellious Northern Britons. And if that's the case, there's a good chance that the rebellious Northern Britons just took them completely by surprise. Or maybe they had to reduce the amount of stone that was being used because they decided to add forts into their construction project and so they needed to fall back on the tried-and-true method of building walls with turf. But regardless of the reason, there were revisions. And among the revisions were the vallum. We've already spoken about the ditches to the north of the wall, but the vallum were ditches to the south, and it seems that they were built alongside the construction of the forts, which we'll talk about in a minute, or maybe even before them. What we're talking about here is a flat-bottomed ditch that was about 20 feet wide and about 10 feet deep. The land was cleared on either side by about 40 feet and bounded by earth mounds that were about 10 feet high. Now here's where it gets a little strange. The vallum didn't track perfectly with the wall. In some places, it widely diverges from the wall, and in other places, it cuts really close. So what's the point of having this thing? It seems like an odd way to build a defensive line, since sometimes it was just so far away from the wall. But on the other hand, the 10-foot high berms would have silhouetted any encroaching army, so it might have had some military value. Frankly, to me, it looks like a border. The Romans were having trouble not only with the Britons beyond the wall, but also, most likely, with the Brigante in the south. We know they had trouble with them before. The vallum very easily could have been a demarcation for a demilitarized zone. If you cross this very obvious border that we made, we'll kill you. Of course, if that's the case, it's pretty clear that the policy was relaxed by the time that the wall was reoccupied, since we start to see settlements along the wall. But that's pretty far down the line, so we'll get back to the actual construction. And during this construction, there was another revision that I alluded to a moment ago. 
Forts. The original plan was that the legions who were constructing the wall would be stationed at forts that had already existed, some as far as two miles to the south. But that was revised sometime after the initial layout of the initial stone wall, known as the Broad Wall, since the later stone wall was narrowed, which became known as the Narrow Wall. So at this point, the Romans began to build forts that straddled the wall. Again, this could be due to increasingly aggressive attacks by the Britons. It would certainly make sense that the Britons would want to halt construction of the wall. After all, it was cutting them off from trade. It was also cutting them off from at least some of their lands, and from other tribes which they could unite with to fight against the Romans. In fact, it seems that the northern Britons and the Brigante were already working together and had jointly rebelled against Rome in 119. And that rebellion most likely was what led Hadrian to build this wall. So the Britons were probably less than enthusiastic about the construction, and were probably very proactive about stopping it. So if I had to guess, and I think I do since you're listening to me, I'd say that the reason the plans were revised, and why we see forts being rapidly built along the wall, was because of this increased aggression by the northern Britons, and potentially the southern Britons. In the end, there were 17 forts that were built, either on the wall or nearby. So let's talk about what these forts look like. The sources for Roman military behavior and construction, beyond archaeology, are generally the Greek historian Polybius, who wrote in the 2nd century BC, and Hyginus Grammaticus, who wrote in the 3rd century AD. So between these two writers, and from archaeological digs, such as the fort at Wall's End, we're able to paint a picture of what these forts were like. To begin with, the main footprint was much like a playing card rectangular with rounded edges, and approximately one and a half times longer than it was broad. They were surrounded by a wall that was generally 10 to 15 feet high and 3 to 4 feet wide. These walls were usually stoned back, but they could have been timber and turf under certain circumstances. The walls had towers at regular intervals, and along the inside was an earthen bank that strengthened the wall and allowed easy access to the rampart during an emergency. Penetrating the wall were double-portaled gates, one to the north and one to the south. These would allow two carriageways of wheeled traffic. These would be flanked by a pair of guard chambers, but after the Hadrianic period, many of these gates were walled up, which suggests that there just wasn't much trade or travel between the two regions. Around the exterior of the wall was at least one ankle-breaker ditch, which was much like the one that was on the north side of Hadrian's Wall. There would have been a latrine immediately inside the wall that would have had room for 16 men. For a legion of over 800 men. (laughs) Have you seen a men's bathroom? Even in modern times, they aren't pretty. And a 16-seat latrine for 800 soldiers? It must have been dire. But I haven't gotten to the best part yet. There's a good chance that a sponge mounted on a stick was dipped into a trough at the center of the latrine, and that was what functioned as their toilet paper. Now let's assume that these sponges weren't communal, and let's pretend that at the time of this hypothetical, your sponge is brand new and unused. And let's assume that there's a working aqueduct system to keep the water flowing through the trough, so it's not sitting stagnant and letting all sorts of creepy crawlies grow in it. Even under those ideal circumstances, it's still pretty gruesome. Especially if you're in the last seat, and you've got to dip your stick into the water that has already been used by the 15 men sitting ahead of you. It certainly puts public bathrooms into perspective, doesn't it? Now far from the latrine, 
in the very center of the fort, in fact, was the Principia, the headquarters. This building was constructed out of stone and was the seat of discipline, morale, religion, and strategy for the legion. It was sacred. Here there were meetings in the basilica, military hearings in the tribunal, and religious ceremonies in the shrine. And, of course, there was a bank. The legion's war chest of money, used for regimental pay and the like, was kept in the Precipia and was guarded by sentries at all times. There were statues to the emperor and legionary standards kept in the chapel, and various smaller offices were held by legionary clerks. This was the beating heart of the fort. Next to the Principia was the Praetorium, the commander's house, which was basically a small Mediterranean villa. Compared to the fort, this was luxurious. In fact, compared to the homes in the territories near the wall, this was really something else. It had a bath, a hippocaust. It was large enough for the commander, his family, and his slaves to all be comfortable. It had a kitchen, it had stables, and thankfully, it had its own latrine. You didn't think the commander was going to go and share in the nightmare that was the soldier's latrine, did you? On the other side of the Principia were a pair of narrow granaries. They were elevated in order to keep the perishables well ventilated and as free from vermin as possible. They were also guarded in order to keep men from requisitioning extra rations for themselves. On the north and south sides of the fort were barrack blocks with the officers' quarters at the end of each block. As you might imagine, the barracks were cramped Though the officers' quarters weren't too bad, they, meaning the officers' quarters, had hand-washing facilities, hearths, and even a drainage system for their own latrines. Now, what we don't know is if these officers' quarters housed just the centurion or also his subordinates and slaves, but regardless, it was much better than living in the barracks. In addition, some forts had hospitals in the central areas and other miscellaneous buildings, but by and large, this is what a fort was like. So in addition to the vallum, the ankle breaker ditch, the curtain wall, and the forts, the wall, oh, and of course, the mile castles and turrets, the wall also had to cross three rivers, the North Tyne, the Earthing, and the Eden, which meant that the Romans had to build fortified bridges. Are you starting to get a sense of the massive scale of this project? Miles upon miles of walls, enormous ditches, mile castles, turrets, forts, bridges, all built within hostile territory. It was a colossal endeavor. Take, for example, the stone portion of the curtain wall. That would have required 3.7 million tons of limestone. Imagine being part of the 2nd, 6th, or 20th legions, the legions who constructed the wall, and having to contend with that amount of stone. It makes your back ache just to think about it. So the legions were building this wall under the command of Aulus Platorius Nepos, who was called over from Germania by Hadrian to construct it. The construction itself took about five years, but of course they weren't building it all year round. Once weather turned, the men would be risking frostbite and the ground would be too hard to dig if they kept going. So during the cold months, construction would stop. And we think that the building season was from April to about October. But still, that's six brutal months. For example, simply building 780 feet of a turf wall with a ditch, not a stone wall, just the turf wall, would have required 210 to 300 men working 10 hours a day in good weather for about 9 to 12 days. 
But keep in mind, that just takes into account the men actively building or digging. For every 10 men building, you probably need another 90 getting materials. And that right there was the major problem for the legions. Logistics. This thing took ages to complete and required more than simply legions. It's been estimated that over the five years of constructions, the Romans probably needed 30,000 vehicles and drivers, 5,800 oxen, and probably 14,200 horses and mules. Even making mortar was a problem. To make mortar, you need lime, and to produce that, you need limestone, you need kilns, and of course, you need fuel. The process just to make the lime took weeks to accomplish, which is probably why so little mortar was used and why they used so much clay. What about the ditches? Surely a ditch isn't that big of a deal. Well, they were. These ditches were so deep that you would need one man in the ditch at the bottom digging, one man halfway up shoveling the dirt to the top, you know, to the lip, and then another man who was shoveling the dirt away from the lip and into a pile elsewhere. Nothing about this wall was easy. Recently, a group made a replica of just 14 meters of the wall, and to do so they needed 400 tons of stone and required 3,637 liters of water per day to mix the mortar. So one thing we don't know about the construction of the wall is the size of the groups that the men were divided into during construction. They might have been divided into centuries, which would have been 80 to 100 men. Or they might have worked in cohorts, which would have been about 500 men. We just don't know. There's another part of the wall that I haven't talked about yet. If you were to visit Hadrian's Wall today, you'd see a Roman road was built along the southern edge of the wall. That wasn't part of Hadrian's plan, and in fact it wasn't built until long after his death. It looks like it was actually created when the wall was reoccupied following the abandonment of the Antonine Wall, which we'll get to next week. The road was a clever addition, and was probably based upon lessons that were learned at the Antonine Wall. Having a road that close to the wall, and tied to other roads which led to Roman towns such as Deva and Aboricum, allowed for quick transport of men and supplies. But again, that road wasn't there during the period we're talking about right now. So what was life like for the men who built and manned the wall under a Hadrian's reign? Well, for one, while the legions built it, they didn't garrison it. That task was left for the auxiliaries. As many as 9,000 auxiliaries were stationed there. These men were from the far reaches of the empire, barbarians who joined up for the promise of citizenship, and consequently, they weren't the best disciplined group within the army. But to keep them in line and to keep them busy, the commanders made sure that their lives weren't just guard duty. They also had them training, engaging in parades, inspections. They were guarding the Principia, the granary, the gates. They were cleaning the bath, the latrine, the camps. As you can imagine, it must have been incredibly exciting work. But to keep them happy, there was also entertainment. The men would play board games. They played sports, they visited brothel, they drank beer, they did all kinds of stuff to keep themselves entertained. And the brothels were particularly popular. I know, shocking, right? But this makes sense since the soldiers were locked in for 25 years and were not allowed to marry during that period. 25 of your best years and you're supposed to be celibate. It's just not going to happen. So of course, there were brothels that started to crop up near the wall and they probably raked in a pretty good income during that period. 
Now, all that work and entertainment requires a high-calorie diet. So for lunch and dinner, they didn't eat breakfast. They ate bacon lard, hardtack, salt, sour wine, bread, porridge, and pasta. They also ate meat and cheese when it was available, but by and large, they really ate a lot of local grain, fruit, and veggies. This diet, by the way, was actually superior to your average Briton. So the men were well-trained, well-fed, and oversexed. So let's move to the next question. Why build it? After all, wasn't this a little bit over the top? Germania didn't require an elaborate defense, nor did Africa. So why did we need to have a huge wall in Britannia? Well, Hadrian wanted to have a visible barrier to separate Rome from the barbarians and mark the frontier of Romanization. The Britons to the south of the wall were pushed to Romanize, while those to the north were left to their own devices. But this was to become the most militarized wall in Europe. So it became much more than a barrier, despite the fact that its design was, well, just that of a barrier. Military historians will tell you, for instance, that the size of the wall was not suitable as a fighting platform. This wasn't, this wasn't built for war. It was just built to stop people. And besides, the Roman army only fought from behind walls as a last resort. They preferred conflict in the field. While a group of northerners could probably have assaulted the wall under the cover of darkness, there are no records of barbarians storming the walls. I know, heartbreaking, right? Those images you have in your mind of barbarians with ladders fighting for possession of the wall was probably just the work of an act of imagination. So was it just a very expensive border? Well, observation and patrolling were major functions of the wall. And the fact that the turrets and mile castles were so closely spaced indicates that they were probably intended to allow for quick mustering of troops. We don't have any evidence of a signaling system, but it's not hard to imagine that a turret under attack could easily request help from its neighbors, who could then send that request further down the line, and so forth. So watching the north had to be in a major purpose. But defending it? I don't know. While there were thousands of men patrolling, the numbers, when you take into account the size of the wall, really wouldn't have been sufficient to push back a significant rebel attack. They could stop small bands, but not a serious army. Another clue to the wall is found in the character and experience of Hadrian. While on the continent, which we touched on briefly, Hadrian was very interested in both the morale and character of his troops. He wanted his men to be well-equipped, well-trained, and well-disciplined. But he also wanted them to maintain a high level of morale. After all, Roman legions were no strangers to the concept of mutiny. Construction and garrisoning of the wall kept the soldiers busy, and a busy soldier is one who doesn't have time to gripe. Not to mention that it kept the auxiliaries far from civilized men. So even if they did run amok, it's unlikely they could damage Roman towns before the legions were dispatched to deal with them. Additionally, the men who were building the wall were building a great wonder of the world, rather than training, cleaning latrines, or doing one of the many other thankless tasks that soldiers had. They were doing something important, and that had to have had a positive impact upon their morale. So morale might have been a possibility. Another clue is that it doesn't seem like Hadrian wanted to completely cut the north off from the south. After all, there were regular gates constructed, while the wall would inhibit trade and travel, it didn't completely stop it. But there is something interesting about the gates and the regular spacing. 
it suggests that either there weren't clear trade routes between the north and the south, or that the Romans simply didn't know about the trade routes. So the Roman solution was just to make it as accessible as possible. Of course, another reason for the regular gates could have been to allow easy access to the north for any Roman troops. After all, mobility was very important to the legions of Rome. And in that case, maybe trade wasn't a consideration at all. The wall and its gates sort of remind me of how our modern military will install checkpoints when they're occupying a territory. And with that in mind, perhaps the wall was just to control behavior the Romans objected to. For example, while the wall would have been a huge inconvenience to farmers who dealt with flocks of animals, as they were probably cut off from a good amount of the land they used for grazing, it did prevent a certain amount of raiding. It wouldn't be very easy for raiders to come down south, steal some livestock, and return north. So controlling that behavior might have been a reason. But the wall still seems a little over the top for simply stopping the theft of sheep. We could also look to the territory the wall was built upon, Brigantium. The Brigante, since the fall of Cartamandua, did not inspire the confidence of the Romans. In fact, it seemed that they were forever looking for an excuse to strike out against Rome. While the tribes to the south were becoming Romanized, these northerners were still acting like a bunch of savages. And they were also probably working with the Caledonians to their north and coordinating their attacks. So one purpose of the wall could have been to both cut off the Brigante from their potential allies, as well as have an incredibly heavily militarized area within the territory of the Brigante, thereby discouraging any rebellious inclinations they might hold. And that split of the territory might have also been useful for the forced Romanization of the area. Those to the south of the wall were stuck there, forced to Romanize, and pay their taxes, whether they liked it or not. And it could have functioned like a Berlin Wall. You know, I don't care if you want to leave. You're here, and you're staying here. Now put on this toga. Or something like that. And it would make sense. The last thing the Romans would want is for the North to become a haven for rebels and criminals. If that was allowed, it would only be so long before they'd organize and come marching south with all the Britons who'd fled their territory. So in addition to keeping the northern Britons, the Caledonians, from coming south, it very possibly could have been to keep the southern Britons from going north as well. And this concept of controlling access to both the north and south is found in the western side of the wall. The wall continued all the way to Bowness, And then beyond Bowness, as the shoreline turns to the south, you see a series of forts, mile fortlets and towers. Clearly, there is a heavy level of alert and defensiveness along the wall, and even beyond it. But it was probably a blend of all of these. The thing is that Hadrian seems to have realized that the era of expansion was over, that Rome should try and hold on to what it has rather than spending ever-increasing amounts of blood and treasure to take more and more territories that only incite further rebellions. But while Rome was experienced in expansion and attacks, it didn't really have a lot of experience in simply holding ground. The legions were accustomed to taking the fight to the enemy. They didn't wait. They didn't sit on walls. So maybe some of the peculiarities of the wall and its manning lies in the fact that the Romans were learning this stuff on the fly. And maybe the ostentatiousness of the wall was deliberate. Maybe it was intended to be so over the top that Rome's enemies to the north would be demoralized by it 
and wouldn't even bother trying to attack. Certainly Rome wasn't above using spectacles as propaganda. And this wall would be a spectacle that would capture our imaginations for nearly two millennia. Okay, well that's about it. If you're still listening, good for you. Um, Next week is not going to be filled with construction and whatnot. But, you know, I wanted to cover Hadrian's Wall in some amount of detail because it was one of the great wonders of the world. So next week, more drama, more fun. This week, if you're still listening, good for you. If you want to go ahead and uh, join in the conversation on Facebook, you can head over to facebook.com slash British History and let me know how you're tired of hearing about construction. Or you can uh, go to thebritishhistorypodcast.com and leave comments there. Or you can always email me directly at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And as always, thanks for listening.